Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to a Watchdog podcast. Excerpts and interviews from the Watchdog Morning Show on WKKX and WVLY. Here's Howard Monroe. I was talking before the break about um, Ascend West Virginia, which is this new program funded by a $25 million grant from uh, one of the Intuit executives who uh, used to live in West Virginia, uh, to encourage remote workers to come to West Virginia, paying them cash and coupons for outdoor activities um, to live in West Virginia for two years, work here, live here, you know, work for out-of-state companies, bringing in new people. Uh, again, numbers uh, very successful in terms of applications, at least. Governor Justice said 55,000 people from 38 states ask about the program within the first two days of it being announced, and uh, 2,000 people actually filled out the application uh, to get one of the 50 spots currently in Morgantown for Ascend West Virginia. But I also point out to you that there were uh, two separate articles I came across yesterday, uh, one in Slate and one in Wonkette, uh, an online website, uh, both of which said that, uh, well, the headline of one of them is no, $12,000 is not enough to make me move back to West Virginia. Another one called The Pointlessness of Bribing People to Move West Virginia to West Virginia for $12,000. Uh, two separate points made in these articles. Number one, um, people who are thinking about relocating will save thousands and thousands of dollars simply by relocating. They will already have looked to see the cost of living dramatically cheaper so if that's what they care about, they'll probably already be thinking about moving the extra Ascend West Virginia stipend. Really probably wouldn't be the driving factor. Um, and the, the other woman, uh, Jamie Lynn Crofts, who, Lynn Crofts, who wrote this, says uh, the politics of the state is so bad, so regressive, that it's just not going to attract people. There's another issue real quick I want to bring up before I get to my guest. Um, this came in a, a tweet to me yesterday. Next time you talk to Jim Justice, Howard, ask him how much those of us looking to move should be paid to stay. Migration out surpasses any transient techies moving here for a couple of years to do outdoorsy stuff before they're ready to settle down elsewhere. And I've had several people ask me the same question. We're paying people to come here. Why don't we worry more about keeping people who are here? Retaining, not attracting. Point very well made, and I thank you for the tweet. Now, I want to shift gears. Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, who has never been hesitant to stick his nose in other states' business, who seems to enjoy getting involved in things that have nothing to do with West Virginia, this week joined 22 attorneys general around the country in writing to President Biden and congressional leadership raising legal concerns about the possibility of statehood for the District of Columbia. 
Uh, we know this is being talked about. Um, it's something that's been a sort of a, a progressive cause for a while. I'm not sure why it's a progressive cause, but it is that those in the District of Columbia who have non-voting members in Congress but should be allowed to have voting members of, of, our, of our legislature um, and should, them, should have the rights of citizenship, it should be an actual state, but it's not. It's the District of Columbia. Um, they're almost like a... fiefdom, I guess, right, to the federal government. Federal government kind of controls a lot of what goes on in there. So there's talk about giving them statehood. It's picked up a little steam lately. and um, But Morrissey wants to stick his nose in because it's what he does and uh, try to prevent that. I want to talk about D.C. statehood a little bit, and I invited one of our newer political analysts, Matt Robeson, who has been a congressional staffer, who has been a campaign consultant, and has been with us here now several times to talk about it. Matt, good morning. Welcome to the show. Oh, always great to be with you. If we gave you $12,000, you could move to West Virginia. You know, I, I wanted to note something about that. You make a really strong point about that. Back when the Appalachian Regional Commission was first formed something like 50 years ago in order to address some of the economic disadvantage of Appalachia, especially, you know, in the heart of West Virginia, they based the measurement of economic distress on a few factors. When we worked in Congress, I actually worked on this bill to create some new commissions based on the Appalachian Regional Commission model. One of the factors that we explicitly added was out-migration, was trying to figure out how many people were leaving the region and what we could do to keep them from wanting to leave so badly. So your thinking is right in line with the best thinking of, of economists who are trying to deal with these kinds of economic disadvantage situations. So you're spot on. Yeah, you know, this, 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 this I, I'm, I'm trying not to be negative because I, 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 it's worth a try and it's funded by, uh, you know, the government to it, uh, Brad Smith. So I'm trying not to be too negative about this a program to attract people, but it doesn't strike me as the most efficient way to do things. Uh, and, and again, as, as you said, as the tweeter said to me uh, earlier today, out migration is really the problem. It's not that we need more people coming. We just need to keep people here. And right. there actually have been some things done in West Virginia. Our own uh, delegate, Fluarty, the puppet master, I like to call him, uh, introduced what he called the Stay in the State Act uh, several years ago. It went nowhere in the Republican legislature. Um, but it was, and I forget the details, but essentially it was forgiving student loans for people who would stay here for X number of years. And he called the Stay in the State Act. So that is a way to keep people here, all right? You graduate, you got student debt, stay here, and we'll forgive that after a period of time. That, that to me, makes a certain amount of, certain amount of sense. Um, I, I, I just, we, we just, and, and probably, and I'm, this is not what you and I need to get into, but probably if we didn't have such a uh, backwards-looking legislature and weren't talking about things like, preventing transgender athletes from competing and um, uh, insisting that coal be maintained at its current level and not in, not allowing alternative energies to flourish. And probably if we weren't quite so backwards looking, uh, there might be more people who would stay and maybe even more who would come. But it's a conversation, I guess. One, yeah, and I don't want to off track us, but I'll, I'll give you one other thought, which is this 
everything you're saying really parallels the debate we're seeing in Washington, which is all around the infrastructure bill and this basic question of what is infrastructure. And Mm -hmm. we've talked before about the fact that I have a, a podcast called the Great Ideas Podcast. And the episode that is dropping today on radio next week on podcast is all about answering that question. And our expert, a Republican, basically says, look, the way to think about this is don't don't focus on how to give people jobs today. If you want to give a bunch of people jobs, think New Deal. Hand everyone a shovel and pay them to start digging. What you right. need to be thinking about is how can you make the economy more productive? How can you make workers create more wealth in the future, in five years, in 10 years? If you're trying to stem the flow of out-migration from a state, that's exactly the kind of thinking you need to be applying. What's going to make it attractive to start a business here, to work here, to raise your kids here? It's a big challenge. It's a challenge in New Hampshire where we're on the air. It's a challenge in a lot of rural areas, but that's that's the core question. So anyway, I commend that episode to folks if they want to check it out. But you're, you're definitely on to the big debate in economics and public policy right now. Well, let's just stick there for a second or two, because it is something we haven't talked about, neither you nor I know really much on this show. Uh, the, the real debate in D.C. right now is what is infrastructure? Um, a lot of Republicans are trying to say, if it's not a road or a bridge, it's not infrastructure, and only a small percentage of the infrastructure bill money is designed for what we would call traditional infrastructure, those things literally under our feet. The Biden administration is saying, no, infrastructure is much more complex than that. Um, a simple and easy-to-see example is broadband. It's not a road, it's not a bridge, but it's a key part of infrastructure. Um, and other things as well. So that definition of infrastructure is really, um, I mean, it's really critical. Absolutely. And that's where I think dropping the traditional definitions is really helpful. If you just think about it as what are the things where it's appropriate for government to make an investment, where it's going to make the economy more productive in the future, it's really helpful because this is an old debate. Back when the Tennessee Valley Authority was being formed, there was a lively debate in Congress. This was the New Deal era about whether electric infrastructure qualified as infrastructure. So this is not a new issue. But I think nowadays, if you ask most reasonable people, they would say, well, the way we connect to each other over the Internet, that's pretty critical for how the economy works. And what makes the economy productive? If you ask people, shouldn't we be protecting that infrastructure so that we can do banking, so we can protect it from terrorist attack or or natural disaster? They would say that is critical infrastructure. So it it is a very narrow construction to say, oh, it's just roads, it's just bridges, it's just the kinds of things that we would have recognized as infrastructure 100 years ago. And it's really not appropriate to today's economy. Just some numbers here, which I haven't had a chance to put before the audience, so I'll do it now since we're talking about it. Uh, An article I have from Politico. um, $621 billion of the American Jobs Plan is devoted to transportation. This is according to Politico's numbers. I haven't done the math. $100 billion to electricity, $100 billion to Internet. Um, They they divide it up into, into real infrastructure, kind of infrastructure, not really infrastructure. 
$821 billion of this plan is definitely infrastructure. Roads, bridges, sewers, those kinds of things. $111 billion is they call, sure seems like infrastructure. Uh, $328 million, or billion is infrastructure-ish. $590 billion, a distant relative of infrastructure. And $400 billion, not even close to infrastructure. So... Uh, but I think there's more There's more of what we, in the broadest sense of the word, mean infrastructure in this bill than the the argument against it is trying to make. I guess maybe that's the point I'm trying to make. I, I, I think that's spot on. I absolutely agree, which is why it's so reductive, it's so misleading to get caught on the word infrastructure. There's got to be a better word. We could probably yeah. spitball around for a while and uh, – well, and, and and this it. political this political article makes I think it's this one or another article I read recently. It makes the point. It actually isn't the. It, they don't call it the American Infrastructure Plan. It's called the American Jobs Plan. Right. So the right. focus and really is be, not. Yeah, it, it should it's be on jobs, jobs not just infrastructure. Right. It should be jobs of the future, and it, it goes back to the earlier point you were making. If you think about it, just in the West Virginia context, what is going to you've got a young person who's just maybe graduated from high school maybe they're maybe they're in college in west virginia and they're thinking about their next steps what's going to attract them to lay down some roots in west virginia well how about what you talked about how about the fact that their education is going to be lower cost than anywhere else how about economic opportunity the fact that so roads and bridges critical absolutely great for the productive economy but how about the ability to network with other entrepreneurs and maybe start a business. How about absolutely world-class broadband infrastructure so that you can sell your products or if you have an information technology business that you want to start, it's the same as if you're starting it in Silicon Valley. That's the, that's the kind of thinking we need to apply, not, again, this kind of reductive thing of, oh, is it, is it X, is it Y, is it a horse and buggy, is it not? Well, in in sales game, uh, we call it isolating objections. If, you, if somebody doesn't like the product you're selling, they just don't like it. But the way they criticize it is by isolating the objections. Yes, but your your rates are too high. Yes, but your audience isn't right. Um, in this case, infrastructure. It's well, yeah, maybe it's a good idea, but it but it's not really roads and bridges. You isolate the objection. You make it sound worse than it is when you have to look at it as a total package. And I think that's, that's what has to be done with that, uh, with that project. Do you think, uh, is the American, let me ask you a couple of questions, Matt, you follow this stuff. Do you think the American jobs plan, the infrastructure bill, uh, will Biden use uh, budget rec- Schumer, I guess, but will the Democrats use uh, budget reconciliation to try and get that passed? During the uh, latter stages of the Cold War, during the Reagan presidency, Ronald Reagan used to say about the Soviet Union, trust but verify. (laughs) I got a sense from the reporting coming out of, and I wasn't obviously in the room myself, the reporting coming out of the meeting between President Biden and senior Republican Senate leaders that President Biden struck the right notes. He signaled that he is open to compromise. He's open to listening to other ideas. And critically, he's open to cutting this thing down. He's taking a trust but verify type approach. He is willing to give a little bit of leeway, a little bit of rope here, 
and see if they can come up with something creative. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, the, 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 as we've talked about before, Mitch McConnell's political incentive is to oppose absolutely everything. It's the best practice politically. It's terrible for the country. But politically, we've seen this playbook before. We saw it in 2009. It works for Republicans when they're in total opposition. And he has asked Senate Republicans to stick with him on that. So in order to pick off a few, maybe more than the filibuster-proof majority of Republicans that you'd need in the Senate, you would have to align their political incentives with the idea that it's better for them to vote for this Biden package than to stand with Mitch McConnell in united opposition. That is an awfully high hill to climb in today's political climate. So ultimately, the likelihood is, yes, Democrats will end up resorting to reconciliation. They will give it a little bit of a try first, probably. I read an interesting piece this week suggesting that Biden talks about compromise and you know bipartisanship, if you will. And the article suggested that that doesn't always have to mean with members of Congress or the Senate. It may mean with simply other people who have other ideas, including the general public. It's like, okay, here's my plan. Do you have a better plan? When we start talking about compromise or bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, right now we're so polarized it's hard to find any middle ground. But, uh, you know, is Biden willing to listen to other ideas um, and are Republicans willing to listen to other ideas? Not the not the elected officials, but the general public. Can you get the public behind this? And I think I think I think the general public can get behind this American Jobs Plan, and therefore can encourage their their elected representatives to to support it. Uh, the question then becomes: Are the elected representatives listening to their constituents or not? I want to draw a connection here between this topic and the topic you floated a few minutes ago about the West Virginia Attorney General joining this letter in opposition to D.C. statehood. Because what you're pointing to with the Biden administration saying, this is bipartisan in the sense that a lot of Republican real people agree with us, it may just be that elected representatives in Washington do not. There is actually straight-line connection between those two topics. For example... After the Sandy Hook massacre, there was bipartisan legislation requiring background checks for gun sales. Polls showed that it was supported by 86% of Americans and 54 U.S. senators. But it was blocked by 46 senators, and under our filibuster rules, that's enough, so that it, it was totally blocked. Those 46 senators who were against it represented just 38% of the country. That is ultimately what the Biden administration is saying, is the American people are with us on the infrastructure bill. If you look at each of the components of it and you look at the current polling, the polling is between 70 and 80% support. There's an awful lot of Republicans who are for these things. The only thing that drives opposition to the bill is if you ask the question, including the word Biden. If you say it's the Biden plan, then it's polarizing. It pulls people back to their partisan tribes. But that's ultimately what this whole D.C. statehood fight is about. It's about the fact that if D.C. were a state, 
It would get two U.S. senators. They would almost certainly be Democrats. By the way, they'd almost certainly be people of color. And those two additional votes would be additional padding bulwark against the filibuster. And you might have a Senate that better reflects what actual human beings, what actual American voters want, not this cabal of senators in Washington. I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I do understand. I shouldn't say it that way. But it boggles my mind that there is a, a an argument against D.C. statehood. I mean, they are people in our country who have non-voting representation already. I mean, why why do why would why should that group of people be denied? By the way, I want to point out D.C. statehood, uh, the, as being talked about, exempts the actual capital part of of District of Columbia, you know, the, the mall and the White House and so on is not considered in that. But uh, wh- why should those people be disenfranchised? I don't understand what the argument is or why the argument is being made. There are 11,000 Americans currently serving overseas who live in D.C. And they are not only subject to taxation without representation. We fought a little war about that. But they're also protecting our country. They're serving in our military, and they don't have representation in Congress. The current member of Congress, the D.C. delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is a very sharp, very able legislator, does not have voting power in Congress. She is a member of Congress the same way that Captain Crunch is a military officer, sort of in name only. So you're asking what is the argument against it. And I got to say, in reading the letter from the West Virginia Attorney General, it reminded me of the movie My Cousin Vinny. Do you remember My Cousin Vinny? I love that movie. Love that movie. Do you remember what Joe Pesci says when he falls asleep and wakes up and he has to make his opening statement and the prosecutor is gone first? He stands up and he, he says something you can't say on the radio. He just turns to the jury and says, Everything that guy just said is BS. And you really get that feeling. It's a a little bit more subtle than that when it comes to the Attorney General's letter. Uh, It it reminds me a little bit of the game Two Truths and a Lie. It's an icebreaker. (laughs) It's a social icebreaker. You, you, You say three things about yourself, but one of them is not true. In this case, there are two lies, and there's a truth in the letter. The lies are the substantive argument against it and the constitutional argument against it. They're both, they're both pretty batty, to tell you the truth. The substantive argument really makes no sense. The attorney general claims that if you made D.C. a state, it would be a, a super state. It would have some kinds of yeah. superpowers. Well, that's bogus, right? It, D.C. as a state, D.C. has 712,000 residents. That's more than Vermont. It's more than Wyoming. It's about the size of Delaware, Alaska. It's about, you know, 40% of the size of West Virginia. So this isn't a crazy superpower state, it's it's about the same as other states. It would actually be first in GDP per capita. It would be first in median household income. It would only be 34th in total GDP. It would be shock smack in the middle from an economic standpoint of measures of the other states. No greater power. So that the substantive argument is ridiculous. Yeah, he calls it a super argument. state with unrivaled political power, and that's 
it would be a state commensurate with the number of people in the state. I mean, and the economic power that comes from that. Absolutely. Why? Why should these people be be disenfranchised? The constitutional argument, I guess, goes to the fact that the, I think the twenty third amendments. I think it's the twenty third says that um, D.C. will have three electoral votes, and that would unbalance them if they had full statehood. Still had three electoral. I'm I'm not enough of a constitutional scholar to understand that, but well, it's actually it's 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 really interesting. It's a crazy little thing. It's uh, it's what the internet would call a weird trick. It's it's a weird trick in our constitution. So you're right. What the 23rd Amendment does is it gives three electoral votes to the District of Columbia. Now, if you made D.C. a state, what the what the bill to do that does, you mentioned this a moment ago, is it sections off a little tiny bit of the current District of Columbia, the Capitol, the White House, the Supreme Court, into a a little federal district. Now, under the 23rd Amendment, that little teeny tiny federal district where almost no one lives would still have three electoral votes. Uh I said almost no one. Who lives there? Who are the only residents? The president and the president's family. That would mean that the president's family would, in theory, have three electoral votes. No one thinks that that is right. Now, what the bill does is it says, all right, we're immediately going to repeal that that section of it. It's silly. But you have to get that done. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a ridiculous argument. There's a little tiny bit of substance there. It's not anything that reasonable people couldn't immediately sort out. The thing that's real in the two lies and a truth game here, the thing that's real is the political argument. It Ultimately, this all boils down to two more votes, likely Democrats, in the Senate. That's why the 22 states that have signed on to this letter are a who's who of unified Republican state control. I can list the states for you. You can list the states for, for your listeners. But you can imagine who they all are. The only exception on there, the only state with a tinge of any blue in it is Arizona. The rest of them are straight red down the line. That's why they're opposed to it. Yeah, this this is almost like the gang of generals. The, the, these these they they get together and they bring these suits uh, frequently. Uh, Patrick Morrissey is always among them. Um, and again, in my opinion, I don't even know why they're sticking their nose in somebody else's business. But that that is a hallmark of Patrick Morrissey, um, and I know why he does it. It's because he likes to get his name out there and make himself look like he's supporting something. All right, uh, Matt, I didn't spend as much time on D.C. State as I wanted to, but that's okay because the other stuff was good conversation as well. I have to move on. I appreciate uh, your time today. You said you have a new Great Ideas podcast coming out uh, this week? New Great Ideas, talking about uh, the, the infrastructure issue. Um, that'll be dropping. And, of course, uh, our main podcast is Beyond Politics. We had an awesome show this week with the former uh, executive director, the staffer, who was the chief of staff for Gabby Giffords, the member of Congress who was shot mm-hmm. and has led gun safety, uh, anti-gun violence efforts over the last 10 years. Really fascinating discussion on where we are. So check that out in Beyond Politics. Beyond Politics, great ideas. And um, you'll find them on Apple Podcasts and pretty much wherever you uh, you like to get your podcasts from. You guys have it up and running, right? That is absolutely right. All right, Matt, we'll talk again. Thank you very much for today. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to this Watchdog Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the podcast page at watchdognetwork.com.